You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. your Bible, something to write on, and something to write with. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 2 toward the end. This summer we're walking through the book of Mark, which is all about King Jesus and his kingdom, and I've given you three ways that you can engage the word beyond uh, the Sunday mornings, and the first one is to read the whole book of Mark out loud um, in one sitting. I'm wondering if anybody has taken the Mark Challenge yet. Anybody in this room done it? Yes, we've got two people back there. So, And your mom did it. Awesome. That's the best. So it's not too late. The rest of you, we've got all summer, but find yourself um, a, a, an afternoon to do this. It will, you'll be amazed. You'll hear things when you read it aloud that you just don't hear when you skim it or take it piece by piece. I also recommend that you look at the Bible Project's video on Mark. In fact, if you Google the Bible Project and go into there, dive into their website a little bit, you'll find all kinds of resources about Mark. I'm particularly interested that you find their overview of the whole book. That'll help. And then if you like uh, podcasts, there's a marvelous telling. It's a fictional telling of Mark's story. It's called The Naked Man, The Naked Man by Sean Gladding. You'll want to remember Sean Gladding because there's several podcasts called The Naked Man and I don't think you want them. (laughs) (coughs) You want the one by Sean Gladding? Um, Each one of his, it's about 45 different podcasts and each one is 10 minutes or less, so very easy. And as I said, they're very very easy to listen to because they're fictional um, flavor for the setting and culture of Mark. It's just good and easy listening. Uh, And you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. So here's the question for today. If you're one who takes notes, write this in the margin of your Bible somewhere in the vicinity of Mark 2.21 or if you're taking it in your journal, write it at the top of your page. This is the question. Do you trust God with your life? Do you trust God with your life? So um, I'm wondering if you've seen The Blind Side, 2009 movie called The Blind Side. Let me see a show of hands. So good number of you have seen it. You'll remember that it's named for a term used in football to describe the side of the quarterback that is least protected. It's usually the quarterback's right side because most quarterbacks are right-handed, so if they're throwing from this side, then, then um, a, a, a tackle can come around from behind and get them from the back. They can circle around to the right side of the quarterback, come in from his blind side. That's what happened to Joe Theismann that ended his career. Lawrence Taylor crushed his leg when he came up on his blind side and sacked him. So that's what a blind side looks like for a football player, but the fact is we all have blind sides. We all have a blind side. It's that vulnerable side of us that can take us down if we, if we leave it exposed and the enemy can get to it. And I can think of all kinds of ways that this might play out if I have uh, a vulnerable side and no accountabi- uh, accountability or discipline guarding the gate. I can think of all kinds of ways that my blind side can play out and end up doing damage. It's 
especially spiritual damage. Does this make sense to you guys? Does this make sense? Yeah. This is why spiritual disciplines are so powerful. They are that external piece like a left tackle. See, that's the thing. When you're, when you're um, a, a, a quarterback really leans on the left tackle, that's the one who holds the line on this side so they don't come around and grab him from behind. So a left tackle is the one that holds the line, protects our most vulnerable side, and that's what spiritual disciplines can do for us. What Mark wants to show us today is how one of those spiritual disciplines, it's really the spiritual discipline among all the spiritual disciplines that has the most potential for having your back. Every major figure in the Bible talked about this habit. Jesus himself was faithful to practice it. The Bible in both testaments claims it as the key to healthy spiritual living, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. It has an incredible ability to guard our blind side, and it is also maybe the, most, the, the least understood of all the disciplines. So even to talk about it, we need to pray first. So let me pray with you first. Lord, you, you, have, you have heard me wrestle with this one already. And so what I need to pray for right now, and, and I'll keep praying in my spirit for this, is that you speak beyond the words. What I so want is for our people, your people, to move beyond the teaching to presence, to really understand to really hear you, Lord, calling them into presence. That's my prayer, Lord. I want to see every person in this room somehow get beyond the line of scrimmage to the long game. So I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, and a heart to receive everything you have for us. All God's people said, Amen. So let's start with where we were last week. In the first chapter of Mark, we got Jesus' mission statement. Jesus said himself, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. That is the mission statement of Jesus, and he comes into his ministry with this, spiritual guns bla blazing. Mark is a kind of fireworks display, a demonstration of the authority Jesus carried over demons, over disease, even over sin itself. And Mark invites us into that authority. That was last week's lesson. Stop running, take authority. Take the authority that Jesus gives you. So let's say that together. Stop running, take authority. Put it together. Stop running, take authority. Okay, let's try that again. One, two, three. Stop running, take authority. That sounds like people who are ready to take authority. When chapter one ends, Jesus has just healed a guy with leprosy, and the guy challenges Jesus. That's the way he gets healed. He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I'm willing, be clean, help yourself, right there. That's the way he does it. And the leprosy, poof, it's gone. To pronounce someone clean was a priestly duty. So with this healing, Jesus has just taken the temple out to the streets. Unprecedented. And then a paralyzed man is brought to him, and Jesus heals the guy. He heals him by saying, your sins are forgiven. But who can do that? That's scandalous. Who gets to forgive people's sins? Who has authority to do that? Nobody except God. So now Jesus has taken the temple into the streets and he has put the mercy seat right in somebody's living room. 
unprecedented. Then he taps the tax collector to come and follow him. And like those first four disciples in Mark chapter one, Levi, who is probably the same guy as Matthew, Levi walks away from everything and begins to follow. Who has that kind of magnetism? And then Jesus goes to Levi's house, and of course, Levi hasn't uh, been following Jesus long enough to get rid of his first set of friends so he can get his other set of friends. So his first set of friends are the ones at the house sponging a meal off of him, a bunch of tax collectors, and then Mark just sort of puts the others in a very general heading of sinners. (laughs) And Jesus eats with them, which means that Jesus, an observant Jew, has now opened up the table to people who sin. Side note, let me chase a rabbit for a minute, speaking of eating with sinners. Our next family communion Sunday <laughs> is June 26th. So here's what we've been doing since about last November. We've been really, I've been encouraging the building of a practice, which is that we take communion in here, and then we take communion out with us and commune with each other. We have sweet communion together. We invite each other to our tables and we eat brunch or lunch with each other and get into each other's lives. So on June 26, we'll take communion again in here. Who will you have at your table? At your table or Panera's table, which is just as valid. And do you need to go ahead and invite them today? So in Mark 1 and 2, everything is being redefined, everything. Jesus has now pronounced someone clean and he has given, forgiven someone of their sin and he has opened up the table of God to all manner of messed up people. Can I get an amen from all the messed up people in the room? And when the doubters ask him about it, he puts it all together by saying this. He's saying, listen, 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 listen. You think we're still at home getting ready. I'm telling you, the wedding is already happening. We're at the party. The kingdom of God is near, and you're going to be late to the game. And that gets us to Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 21. Jesus says, Nobody sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will uh, will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, you put new wine in new wineskins. In other words, if what you're seeing looks new, it's because it has to be. That's what Jesus is saying to his first century audience. If what you're seeing is new, it's because it, it has to be. The mission of the Messiah requires new structures, new ways of breaking in. The kingdom of God is near, and when the in-breaking kingdom breaks in, things change, or, or we see them differently. How we see reality, how we, how we welcome reality, how we process reality, it all changes. Even how I see illness changes when I understand the power of Jesus. How I see sin changes when I understand the authority of Jesus. And as this kingdom reality begins to build in me, well now, now that starts to bleed out how I use my money changes. How I use my time, that changes. How I see people, that 
changes. How I make my decisions, that also changes. Even time itself is transformed. And of course, all this is being spoken to a first century audience first, but it applies to us too. The spiritual principle is this. Read this together. The rules of the kingdom have not changed for us, but the kingdom of God is meant to change us. Does that make sense? It isn't that the kingdom has changed, but my exposure to it changes me. So the question is, is the kingdom of God making its mark on your life? Has it? Is it changing you? Have you allowed the inbreaking kingdom to change you? You should write that question down. First person, have I allowed the inbreaking kingdom to change me? I want you to take everything we've just learned in Mark chapters 1 and 2 and bring it to the most unusual climax of a, of a teaching. What I believe Mark wants us to hear is this, yep, the kingdom is near, and Jesus is breaking in through healing and deliverance and redemption and the calling out of destiny in, in these followers. And if you want to enter in and receive the authority Jesus offers and live in the fullness of the kingdom of God, you have to start where Jesus, where God starts with the first humans back in the Garden of Eden and with, with, what, with what we are calling this morning the left tackle. Do you remember what the left tackle is, right? The left tackle is the one guarding the quarterback while the quarterback is making his, is, is looking for his opening, looking for his 50-yard pass. The left tackle is the one keeping all the offensive, defensive, whatever they are, people <laughs> from getting to him. This is huge, friends. Do you hear me? I mean, do you hear this? Do you hear how easy, do you hear what different, I mean, how many of us are playing life at the scrimmage line? And constantly, constantly having our, um, having our, our, our blind side threatened, and so we're having to just plow through and gain a yard or two. We're plowing through and gaining another yard or two, and plowing through and gaining another yard or two. Never enough to get a first down, it feels like. Because we're not paying attention to the left tackle, making sure the left tackle is there so we can step back and actually play the long game. Come on. The quarterback can't play his long game without the left tackle, and neither can we. And here's what Jesus says it is. Jesus says it's the Sabbath. It's whatever it takes to make space so you can see what God is up to. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. This is Mark 2.23. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The disciples said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? The problem for the Pharisees is that walking through a field picking grain is technically work. No Jew is supposed to be doing work on the Sabbath. You can't do work on the Sabbath. By the rules, that was work in a day you're not supposed to work, which isn't rest. Never mind that you might be hungry or that this is just something you might enjoy. For rule followers, 
that's not rest, you can't do it. Now remember what we said, the rules of the kingdom have not changed. But the kingdom of God is meant to change us, and that's where the Pharisees get it wrong, those religious leaders, where they get it wrong is that they have not let the Sabbath change them. And so now Jesus is about to give the Sabbath its fullest meaning. It's not just rest, it's restoration. It's the left tackle. It allows us space enough to be able to play the long game. It's how we get back then to the creation side of Genesis 3 where we get to lay our head on the lap of God and rest in him and hear how, the, how, how creation is, uh, hear, hear the, the perspective of God on the creation around us. Look at verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. This is sort of brilliant, actually, that Jesus brings this up. It's a little story from the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 21, the time when David and his men are running from Saul, who wants him dead. Saul will be the next king, and, excuse me, David will be the next king. And even if that hasn't been said out loud yet, Saul can feel it, and he can feel the anointing on David's life, and it makes him angry. He's threatened by David's anointing. So David is keeping his distance out in the wilderness while Saul calms down. And one day they're hungry, and they know where some bread is. There's always bread on the altar of the Lord. And so they walk right into the temple and they eat off the altar and God doesn't seem to mind. Unprecedented. So now Jesus brings this story forward and if you're a Jewish person, you have just been slammed and you know it. Sabbath is the temple. David is the new king. Uh, the Pharisees are, are sorry, sorry, wait a minute, say it again. Sabbath is a kind of temple. Jesus is the new David, who is the king. Jesus is the new David. The Pharisees are Saul, and God is still feeding hungry souls. God is still feeding hungry souls on sacred ground. Sabbath feeds souls. It's our chance to practice the inbreaking kingdom, to rest in the God who provides as we come to his temple to be fed and then carry his temple out into the world. To me, this is coming like a profound thought. I've preached on Sabbath probably half a dozen times over the years, and I always start with a huge apology, you know, about how I don't do it right, blah, blah, blah. Because I thought you were just supposed to sit on your hands. This time around, I'm really understanding Sabbath differently and, de and more deeply. The Sabbath is meant to be a representation of the inbreaking kingdom in the world, which means that every single day, excuse me, every single week, we get to practice a little inbreaking kingdom. How awesome is that? We can feed souls when we do that. And I think it means so much more than my words can say. I get that it all sounds kind of abstract and mysterious. What does it even mean? How do I use this? But somehow I want you and me both not to run past it so quickly. 
What I want you to hear is this Sabbath is the left tackle that guards our view of the kingdom. So we have a chance to do more than just tick off stuff on a to-do list. It gets our spiritual eyes up over the horizon. It also allows us to sink down more deeply into the word of God, into the worship of God, into the presence of God. That's all Sabbath is. It's just find yourself in the presence of God and be there long enough that he begins to change you. Talk about a new wineskin. But by the time of Jesus, this wasn't how anybody was seeing Sabbath. Sabbath was a rule to follow. It was just an emptying of your schedule and a day to endure. But now here's Jesus saying Sabbath isn't about following a rule at all. It's about following the Holy Spirit into the kingdom of God. It's about resting in God's realities and letting them change us so that eventually that Sabbath mood and that Sabbath trust and that Sabbath resting in God's realities will start to bleed over into the rest of our lives until one day, if we've done it right, it all looks like Sabbath. Our whole lives begin to look like the inbreaking kingdom. Time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Peggy Noonan had a column last week. She was talking about some unlikely uh, political things that had happened. Um, And in that column, she wrote this. She wrote, our country is a tea kettle on high flame. Would you agree? (laughs) Yeah. Our country is a tea kettle on high flame at full boil. Wherever possible, let the steam out. Be part of a steady steam release before the kettle blows. Like I said, she was talking about political things, but she could just as well have been reminding us not to neglect the Sabbath. Because that's how we step back and let the steam release. And it's also how we give space for the wisdom of God and the rest of God and the pleasure of God and the goodness of God to to leak first into our lives and then act like a steam release into the world. And Sabbath is your left tackle. Sabbath is the practice that guards your most vulnerable side, keeps you from getting blindsided, run over. Sabbath gives you space to play your long game, to practice what it's like to live like the kingdom is near, like Jesus has come. So we can stop running so we can take authority so we can feed souls sabbath is how the kingdom comes because sabbath belongs to the king jesus says so look at verse 27 he says he's, to them he says the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath so the son of man is lord even of the sabbath That's the point Mark has been trying to make from the moment he put pen to paper to write the story about Jesus of Nazareth. He wants us to know that Jesus is Lord, and that is not just a personal reality. It is a cosmic reality. Jesus is king of the universe. There's another story told in the the same section of the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 12. We get this description of a day in the life of the Israelite people. They're, they're building idols, they're practicing their fallenness, 
chronically looking for a physical solution to a spiritual problem. Eventually, they decide the real issue, the real issue is with leadership. The leadership is the problem. Up to this point, they've had a prophet priest or what in, in the Old Testament that was, was called a judge. And, and God comes to them in the midst of their idol making and they say, you know what? We don't really want you as our God anymore. We want a king. We want a king like all the other people have a king. Why do they want a king? Because rebellious souls struggle to draw strength from a real God. You should write that down. Rebellious souls struggle to find strength from a real God. Rebellious souls are always looking for a physical solution to a spiritual problem. If only we get the right king, our lives will be better. That's why Democrats are always looking for uh, a Democratic president. It's why Republicans are always looking for Congress to, um, to change hands. If only we can get only we can get. That's why codependents do say things like, if I can just do what it takes to make him happy, everything will be better. That's why workaholics say, if I can just get this project, this job, this deal, this financial fix, everything will be better. Everything will be better. If I can just, if I can just. That, if I can just, that lives in your spirit is a powerful statement about how you're wired. We are wired to want some alternate, uh, some alternate set of circumstances that will make it all right for us, that will fix it, that will give us all the good feels. But of course it doesn't. Our loved ones can change or not change. That doesn't fix us. Workaholics have completed projects and reached goals only to find that the itch for more is relentless. I can tell you personally, you will never come to the end of your workday. Addicts stop using, but they're still not happy. The world is full of dry drunks, unfulfilled addicts, people looking in all the wrong places for something to erase the pain. The real frustration is over our love-hate relationship with kingship. We cannot see what we cannot see, so we keep trying to anoint other kings, or we long for the old ones, believing everybody would be better if it would just get back to that one king who made us happy which becomes its own kind of idol. That's the idol of regret. Is there a king with power to lead us? Mark says yes. After a centuries-long experiment with kings of our own making, the word is that God has taken back the throne. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> has proven himself to be the one king with power enough to to, to Rule us to fulfillment with truth and grace, justice and mercy, so we press our own flesh into the death of Jesus so we can receive life through the Messiah, and then we follow him as our Lord. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath because the Son of Man is Lord, period. Amen. And in the most creative and life-giving way, Sabbath makes this same exact point. Sabbath invites us to silence our will before God. Sabbath says, you cannot fix your way out of this. Presence. 
Presence is the only way out. Presence is the only way to get your eye back on your long game. Sabbath guards us against the enemies of rush and anxiety and inadequacy and even the own, our own idol of self-sufficiency and greed. And Sabbath invites us to trust God with our whole lives. Do you trust God with your life? It's this gift of insight into what can be Sabbath. You know, if, if the left guard, Sabbath, if Sabbath is guarding my blind spot, I have a minute. I have a minute to play my long game. Does this make sense? In rabbinic traditions, there's a saying very close to this. The Sabbath is handed over you, not you to it. In other words, you own this gift. How will you use it? Will you use it poorly, wearing yourself out, getting everything just right? Or will you use it to feed souls? We use Sabbath as a source of healing. We use Sabbath to root out the sin. A.J. Swoboda has written a book called Subversive Sabbath. A.J. Swoboda is a, he's a professor at Fuller Seminary. And he, and he talks in his early chapter about, about Sabbath, he talks about his grandparents winning the lottery. His grandparents won the lottery. <laughs> it's like they've been married for nearly 50 years. And they won, and winning more than $4 million was a great source of blessing for their family in some ways. They paid a lot of bills, and they paid for a lot of tuition. But the lottery also uh, ruined whole family relationships. His grandparents ended up divorcing. I mean, after 50 years, his grandparents ended up divorcing because they won the lottery. Family members stopped talking to each other. Sounds like it was a long, dry spell for the whole family for many years. And Swoboda says he tells the story to, to share a lesson that he learned from it. And this is the lesson. You should write this down. More important than the gift is how we use it. More important than the gift is how we use it. When we don't understand the gift, we'll fight over it and we'll demand from it what it isn't even designed to give. Mark will go on in chapter 3, just the next little section after what we've just read. I mean, it's really part of the section that precedes it. He'll tell the story of a time when Jesus actually healed a man on the Sabbath in the temple. <laughs> and that was the day, that Sabbath healing, that was the day that first put the thought of murder in the minds of the religious leaders. I mean, who could have guessed that Sabbath, that God's day, could be that subversive, that could hold that much power? Sabbath is what made them start thinking about killing. So Voda says the worst thing that has ever happened to Sabbath is religion. Religion is hostile to gifts. He says religion hates free stuff. 
But here it is. There it is, it's free. The gift of a left tackle. And the chance to practice your long game. Free. The gift of a left tackle and the chance to practice your long game. And I'd ask you to just do some inventory. How do, how do I use my time? How do I care for people? I mean, do I work myself so hard? Do I run myself so far down that all I can do is, is binge watch Netflix on my Saturday or Sunday? I mean, guilty, but I'm just saying, y'all should get the preach today. How do you use your time? How do you care for people? Is there space in your Sabbath for caring for people? How do you honor the place of Jesus in your life? Do you trust God with your life? That's the question. And presence is what he's after. Like I said, all of this sounds really abstract when I'm talking about it. I don't know if it's come across for you or not. I can just tell you that for me, as I am thinking about Sabbath again, as I am thinking about the season of life I'm in right now, I'm realizing, like I've, I've maybe never realized it before, that if, if I let, if I play my whole game right there on the line of scrimmage, if I'm just plowing through project after project after project, trying to get past this thing and then this thing and then this thing, if that's how I spend my whole life, I will never have the chance to play the long game. Never. And nobody else is responsible for my long game except me. Nobody else. It's not their fault if I get it wrong. It's not their glory if I get it right. Nobody else. And so my prayer for you is presence. Space enough to hear the voice of God, not avoid it. Space enough in your life. <laughs> not to get another couple hours of sleep, but space enough to hear Jesus. We stand. And that's what anybody wants for their friends. That's what anybody would want. I want you to have space enough to hear the voice of Jesus so you don't go worshiping false idols or opening your vulnerable side so that they either come and crush you or you end up just playing the scrimmage just plowing in, plowing in. That's not what the long game is. That's not what the Christian life, the life of following Jesus is meant to do. It's not how it's meant to be lived. So pray with me. Let's bow your head, close your eyes. And here's what I'm going to ask of you. There's some of you who feel this deeply. You feel this deeply. You're tired and you are kind of clueless about where this is all headed. You do not know what happens next. 
and it's because you have not given yourself space to be in the presence of Jesus, well, here's your opportunity. You come and you kneel here. And if you want to come and kneel here, and if you, if you want to deal with Jesus by yourself, do it. If you want somebody to come and pray for you, just hold your hands out like this. Just hold your hands out, and somebody will come and find you and pray with you. Okay? And right now, we're just going to create a little space, a little Sabbath moment for you to hear from Jesus. And that's my prayer, Lord, that somehow in this space today, somebody would hear from Jesus a new word. Not a word that changes all the rules, but a word that makes the kingdom of God so clear. There it is. There it is. That's my prayer. That's my prayer. Somebody in here today would be able to say, oh, my goodness, there it is. I am at the party. I am at the table. I get my sins forgiven. I get my thing healed. I get, I get Jesus. That's my prayer. Lord, I'm praying that you would do a new thing here in this room this morning. Do a new thing. New wine, new wineskins. In-breaking kingdom. Long game work. That's what I'm praying for this morning. In Jesus' name, you're invited to come. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.